Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In early February of last year, we were joined by Fiona Hill, the British-born, Washington-based policy analyst specialising in Russian affairs, who, who became a public figure when she testified before the House Committee during the first impeachment of Donald Trump. We discussed her own background in working-class Northern England, the career trajectory which took her to the United States, and the underlying geopolitical currents which have led to momentous events, including Brexit and the rise of Trump all of which is explored in her own book, There Is Nothing For You Here. We also discussed the rising tensions at the time over the build-up of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. And three weeks after our conversation, Russia invaded and the war began, and as we know, continues to this day with little sign of a clear outcome. I am delighted to welcome Fiona back today to discuss what's been happening and what's likely to happen now. Hi, Fiona, and welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. I suppose that my first question is, it's in the, in the, in the slightly over a year since, since we spoke, so much has happened. What has surprised you the most? Well, I think what surprised me the most by this stage um, is that most of the discussions about this war now revolve around the United States. I mean, I would actually argue that this is almost becoming a proxy war of the rest of the world against the United States, which may sound confounding and rather confusing uh, to listeners. But, you know, a lot of how people look at this war is based on how they view the United States. You get more of whataboutism. You know, so here we are, a year more into a brutal war, which was provoked by Vladimir Putin and you know, as a war of aggression by Russia against Ukraine. And, you know, increasingly around the world, we get a lot of what seems to be apathy. Well, you know, this is really nothing to do with us. And what about what the United States has done? You know, we've had the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Yes, um, and obviously not just a strategic blunder, but you know something of a major violation of international law. And then people talk about, well, what about what the US did here and Vietnam and you know Korea? And I get letters and notes from people all the time. And I think, well, what's this got to do with Ukraine? Because you know, increasingly, there's this debate going on: is this a proxy war? So is the proxy war between Russia and the United States or the collective West, which is what Putin calls? The United States and Europe plus Canada or Australia and New Zealand and you know, G7 and, and some of the allied countries of the United States? Or is it really ultimately about what Russia has done in Ukraine? And I think that's what surprised me the most is how muddied and confused the whole discussion about this war has become. It sounds from what you're saying there that Vladimir Putin has has had some success then in persuading. I think we're we're largely talking about the countries of what we call the global south, and we've had other other contributors on this podcast talking about this as well, who are let's say they are less than convinced or even deeply unimpressed by the argument that this is a fight for um, for sovereignty and 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 democracy, and maybe that's in part because they point to hypocrisies as they see them in the past from the United States in particular, or maybe it's because they don't see this particular conflict as being directly relevant to their own local interests. 
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, part of the problem, you know, also is the way that it's, uh, as you said, Vladimir Putin actually has been pretty successful and getting traction here, but it's that depiction of this as a territorial dispute. And there are many people within our own societies in Europe and the United States who look at it like that as well. You know, people saying all the time, well, of course, Crimea belonged to uh, Russia after 1783, and it was Nikita Khrushchev uh, who transferred Russia to Ukraine inside of the Soviet Union. You know, as if countries frequently pass, you know, territory around, you know, from kind of one uh, to the other, or as if, you know, history, uh, you know, depends on, you know, the, the validity of a, a particular perspective. I mean, there was a lot of history going on be- before 1733, as anybody, you know, elsewhere in Europe, elsewhere in the world would uh, point out. It's hardly that history begins in 1783, when Russia uh, basically seizes or conquers Crimea, you know, for example, from the Ottoman Empire or, you know, any of the other kind of battles of conquest that Russia engages in leading up uh, to that point. But there's this, just this whole swirl now around about, well, how is this different uh, from anything else? And what we're losing sight of, which gets to the, you know, the point that uh, you raised just there about how it's viewed elsewhere in the world, is that we had a pro- prohibition against war and use of force enshrined in the UN Charter, Article 2 of the UN Charter after 1945. And that was the cornerstone of the whole international system. And that's what uh, is getting lost sight of. And that, again, also leads us into this whataboutism because, of course, countries then start to point out and leaders and critics uh, point out that while the United States violated that prohibition against war and the use of force when it invaded Iraq in 2003. So we kind of go in this circular fashion. I think what it also kind of comes down to is there's a lot of fatigue where the United States is the kind of global hegemon out there in the rest of the world. And so the fact that the United States is out there defending Ukraine militarily feeds into that perception of, here we go again, this is another US military intervention. So a lot of people are very quick to see critics within the United States, within Europe and elsewhere, the United States up to its usual military interventions, even though there are not US boots on the ground, but there are now an awful lot of weapons uh, on the ground in Ukraine. So again, you know, what I've been surprised about, but perhaps, you know, shouldn't be surprised because this is kind of the nature of uh, these uh, conflicts and these wars that they morph into something else over time. But it's that shift from Russia's invasion, the shock of Russia's invasion, to now you know, an open critique of the United States, the United States global, global leadership in so many uh, different and so many different places and so many different fora at this point. And again, kind of losing sight of what's really actually happening on the ground in Ukraine or what Ukraine is doing, which is fighting for its own sovereignty and independence. There are political pressures out there that, you know, that may, it's it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. Ron DeSantis had to walk back, you know, remarks about this being a territorial dispute. There was a touch of a small country of which we know little about his about his initial comments. Are those pressures likely to rise? There was a lot of talk last year about how European uh, voters were unlikely to put up with the pain of the of, of energy rises. And they seem to have managed OK with that. But Vladimir Putin was always bargaining that the West was weak and the West was fragmented and the West would ultimately get sick of this, wasn't he? He was, and he still is. And I mean, he's watching this very closely. And I think you framed it really nicely there because, you know, there actually is an interesting difference. I'm sitting in Berlin as we're speaking here. Um, so it's been fascinating. Uh, I've, I've spent two months here and I've got another couple of months ahead of me. It's been really fascinating 
watching and listening to things from this perspective rather than sitting in Washington DC. You know, this is this is actually quite a refreshing change. It has opened my eyes quite a lot. And actually, I think Europe has positioned itself much better than we could possibly have anticipated, Germany included. As you said, we had a lot of scepticism about them early on. Well, Europe has found its spine. And in many respects, is also the realisation that this is a European conflict. This is the last gasp of the 20th century. It's yet another great power war in Europe. Yes, over territory, but also over the future of Europe. Because Russia's the last land empire. The Ottomans are gone, the Austro-Hungarians have gone, Russia kind of went, but still kept a lot of territory, took more territory back after World War II. This is really the kind of last gasp of Russian imperialism. And Europeans don't want 20th century wars. They don't want to go back to pre-1945 or Putin's taking them back to 1783 and sometimes 988 when he talks about all of these ties of the Russian state to Crimea and Ukraine, you know, for example, and prehistory. And Europeans are saying, look, that grip of history, that was fever dreams of history, what led us into the devastation of World War One and World War II. We don't want this again. And we're not going to let, you know, Vladimir Putin, you know, for the most part, this is what you're hearing at the elite levels, drag us back to this. Now, in the United States, of course, this has started to play out in domestic politics. As you rightly said, we've had Marjorie Taylor Greene, got Ronda Sanctuary, and all kinds of people coming up with all kinds of different questions. Also, whataboutism in uh, the United States as well about Ukraine and, well, how is this different? I mean, again, I, I get lots of emails from people saying, well, how is this different from what we did in Vietnam or what we were doing in Korea? Well, there's a lot of difference here. This is Ukraine fighting for itself and us selling weapons you know, to help support them. It's like Britain, you know, in the um, period of the 1939 to US entry into the uh, World War Two, when there was a lot of weapons being sent by the United States, but the United States didn't want to be in the war, but it did want to help Britain. And of course, as we all know, Pearl Harbor changed that calculation. So, you know, there are a lot of things playing out here that have got historical echoes. But in Europe, there's this, again, this very strong feeling that, we can't go through all of this again. We've got to stand up and do something. And there is concern about the United States now, more so perhaps even than Europeans. Will the United States just get so snarled up in the churn of the domestic politics and the presidential campaigns leading up to 2024, which nobody knows where it's going to lead, that the US will kind of go off the rails? And there's a certain feeling that the United States is critical to the war but it's Europe that's going to have to pick up the mantle of the peace because it's Europe that's going to have to really focus on Ukraine's restructuring and rebuilding. And yes, there's questions about the cost and how that's going to be done. But there is worry in the interim because we don't know how long this war is going to go on as whether the United States is going to stay the course. So it's kind of interesting, again, how this is played out over the course of this year. But definitely getting back to your point, Vladimir Putin's thinking, you know, what can I exploit here? What can I exploit in the US? and the domestic politics, and what can I exploit here still in Europe to you know, weaken resolve? So there's all kinds of fractures that could, of course, be exacerbated and, and played into here still. An unknowable question is what's likely to happen on the battlefield itself over over the months ahead. And I, I do wonder, um, there was a lot of hope and perhaps expectation placed in the, the, the prospect of a spring-summer offensive by Ukrainian forces on the back of what happened last autumn in the Kharkiv region and then in Kherson. Um, but 
some some leaks which have happened out of American military uh, military intelligence and other signs too indicate that you know the prospect of a really significant change in the fortunes of war is 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 far from certain and maybe even far from likely. And what happens? What impact does it have on the geopolitical situation outside Ukraine if such an offensive doesn't happen or sputters to a halt? Yeah, I mean, these are always the risks, aren't they? If we think back to other wars, that, you know, this offensive or that offensive doesn't happen. I mean, you know, how many times do people speculate about the the course of events on the battlefield in any battle, in any historical context, all the time? And we really can't say, none of us can say where this is going. Um, You know, battles that look like they are decisive turn out not to be. And then there's the unexpected turn of events. And there are multiple levels, just to be very clear, about battlefield, because there's also the information war. We were just talking about that. There's the uh, battle of propaganda. Uh, there are the domestic fronts. Uh, there is the broader international front. You mentioned you know, the so-called global south, which is not great terminology, but right now we're not quite sure what we're calling the rest of the world uh, outside of the transatlantic alliance. And you know, the people who are not seeing themselves as parties to this war, and they're watching all of this as well. I'm wondering how this plays out. Putin's definitely making a pitch, if not a play, uh, for their opinions and their views. Because an awful lot of this will depend on how the rest of the world tolerates, supports or opposes what's actually happening on the battlefield in Ukraine and how it think, they think that it, it affects their interests. Uh, and again, there's, there's a lot riding on this. There's also the domestic battlefront in Russia itself. Do people really fully support what's happening here. I and mean, we see enormous amounts of repression. Uh, we see you know, 25-year prison sentences split for people like Vladimir Karamozov, people that all of us you know, know, the continued pressures that's put on Alexei Navalny and other opposition figures, uh, ordinary Russians being ratted on, denounced by uh, people sitting next to them in restaurants or their neighbours, uh, fathers being separated from their daughters because of a drawing that they you know the, the the daughter did at school or in one of the you know, famous uh, cases. All kinds of people being discouraged from dissenting, you know, to the point that it's very difficult to decide what's actually happening in Russia and how many people you know really support this war or are just trying to keep their heads down. And how much will events inside of Russia affect what actually happens too? The wild card in all of this is Vladimir Putin and also the people around him. He's become so entrenched and so much of a micromanager of this conflict, so much associated with it, that his own physical, mental and uh, you know, political faculties uh, really matter a lot in this conflict. Looking at that very broad tapestry there and conscious that you are originally, first and foremost, a Russia expert, and obviously that has also meant a Putin expert uh, over the last two decades or so. I think at the moment in your book, when you know you arrived in the old Soviet Union for the first time back in 1987, and all the people who were in the seats that you occupy now would never have predicted what was going to happen in the three or four years that followed. So is it an element here of we just don't know what might happen in terms of the stability of of the regime uh, and pressures on it from from either side, whether it be from people getting angry about the war or whether, or, or indeed people thinking the war should be prosecuted more violently, which we, we see quite a lot of too. You're spot on. I mean, we see a system in crisis there. You, know, you have a lot of people openly criticising the system. We can see power struggles going on. There's Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner uh, group, uh, who's been out and about in ways that we wouldn't have anticipated before, almost looking like he's challenging Putin's power. He's certainly pa- uh, challenging 
the influence and role of the military hierarchy and the general staff and at the uh, head of the military and those who are conducting the war. Uh, the Minister of Defence, Shoigu, and again, the head of the general staff, um, uh, Grasimov, and who's been put in charge of the war effort. There's clear, open clashes going on among them. Prigozhin doesn't have a formal role, but his Wagner paramilitary group have been playing an outsized role, particularly in battles like Bakhmut, which is still kind of going on in a bloody, grinding, World War One like fashion as we're speaking. You've got... Um, Mass exodus of people from Russia. I'm sitting in Berlin, and there are, you know, if I open my window now, I could hear Russian more likely than I could hear German. I'm living in a part of Berlin when I hear Russian and Ukrainian on the streets every day. There are masses of refugees here, not just from Ukraine, and there are Russians who made their homes here before in Berlin, who might be supportive of Putin and the war, who are going backwards and forwards. Uh, there are people all over the place with different views. You've seen lots of Russians move to the Middle East to uh, places like Dubai and the Emirates, moving their money, you know, Russian oligarchs and uh, business people. And of course, Putin keeps calling people up into the military. And lots of people are staying now, but they're still trying to avoid the draft. We had hundreds of thousands of people who fled to all of the surrounding uh, countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Turkey, Kazakhstan, you know, you name it, but people have gone there. There's all kinds of People who used to be technocrats in the Russian government who are rattling around Europe now and be turned into dissidents. I mean, this is a country under great strain because of the decision that Putin made a year plus ago to invade Ukraine. It's had a knock-on effect on the future of Russia. It's just that we don't know how this turns out. It's definitely fragile. There's a brittleness there. There's all kinds of vulnerabilities. But, you know, we also know from history and from Russian history that authoritarian states and autocracies can cling on because they can keep on marshalling resources for a period of time. You know, as you rightly said in 1987, you know, when I got there to the Soviet Union for the first time, I thought, whoa, whoa, this is looks like it's on its last legs, but it could have continued on for years. They just end up being these precipitating events, tipping uh, points that people don't really realise they're in the midst of. In some ways, I'm sure I, I know it's very opposite with what was happening in in the 1930s in Europe. That you have a a sort of a you know a, a criminal militarized regime taking advantage of opportunities that arise as it sees in terms of weakness in its in its opponents and taking a bite of something, then a bite of something else, and that getting bigger all the time. But the difference, it seems to me, is that you know, in a way, the, the cliche is that the Nazis, for all their horror, made the trains run run on time. They had they had a very efficient. They were very efficient in their militarization of that society. There was a kind of forward movement and a sort of an energy to them, which I don't see in Russian society, which seems uh, corrupt, uh, inefficient, um, economically backward. I suppose you could say. And, you know, the, the evidence on of the war over the last year or so is that this is not a um, a sort of a new world order. It's a, it's a kind of a crumbling, decrepit, rather corrupt kind of a system. Well, look, I mean, I think we could, you know, debate um, also Nazi Germany because it was all of sort of superficial glitter. And there was obviously an ideology there that was, um, you know, pretty uh, profound impacts and of course a pretty horrible one as well in the direction of, uh, of travel there. And yeah, I mean, the trends seem to run on time, but, you know, you've also got to remember that um, Germany really crumbled uh, also economically after World War One, And, uh, you know, the economy was you know, still fairly creaky. It's really after World War Two when uh, Germany is forced to shed 
and not just the horrors and come to terms with them of World War Two, but that um, you know former industrial structure that Germany emerges as a kind of a real economic powerhouse. And Russia, actually, one would have said, up until let's just say the mid twenty tens, was on an upward trajectory. And in fact, one could also argue that Russians have been living their best lives and Russia's been forming the best that it ever has in history under you know, the, the first parts of Putin's uh, tenure. You know, if Putin had stepped aside or Putin hadn't done this war and you know, had kind of you know, decided to hand over the reins to someone else in 2024 um, or you know, at an earlier stage, we might assess them very differently because you know, the Russian economy was booming at different points. Obviously, the benefit of high oil and gas prices, but also some pretty um, astute and careful macroeconomic policy and fiscal management. And Russia still has a lot of really gifted economic technocrats who are keeping this place together. But, you know, as you are saying here, it's running out of steam. I mean, when you push everything towards a war economy and you end up getting sanctioned massively and you cut off all of your trade and you just kind of pour all of your resources into a war-fighting machine, and then you start to exhaust that, you're going to have major knock-on effects. It's a demographic effect as well, because, you know, you're sending so many people to the front. I mean, I guess we don't really know how many Russian casualties uh, there are in terms of deaths and um, in, in injuries. You know, we've about 200,000, but we also, of course, got hundreds of thousands of people who've left. You've lost some of your best and your brightest and your uh, innovative capacity, your creative classes as you know people term them they're you know here there and everywhere and you know what is the question for the future i think you know putin has thrown away the future you've had a lot of key investors pull out yes some are still there but russia is not going to be the russia that it was in the 2000s and moscow is not going to be the place that it was on the surface it still looks like it's trucking along but as you're suggesting there you know the that innovative capacity that um, vibrancy that prospect for something of the future has gone. Putin's just peddling the past, and his present is all about taking Russia back to the past. There's nothing that he is offering for the future. He's not got an ideology at this point that he's trying to, you know, basically sell to anyone. This is all just about him and his versions of the past. Is there an even broader underlying truth here that strikes me looking at this beyond even the problems of Russia, huge as they are, which is that the the collapse of the Soviet Union, as you said, the fall of the last great European pan-national empire more than 30 years ago left a whole number of unresolved questions, certainly for Russia itself internally, but also for the number of successor states. Obviously, three of them, the Baltic states, ended up in the European Union and they've they've benefited enormously for that. But all the other ones have had economic difficulties, political difficulties, difficulties with Russia interfering in their domestic policies, that we never really got a proper post-Soviet settlement in those countries. No, absolutely. You're right. I mean, spot on again. I mean, what, let's just um, reflect on you know what's happened quite recently with the Chinese ambassador to France. I mean, I, I don't think if, if listeners you know paid attention a lot to this, but there was there's been this scandal about the Chinese ambassador to France who speaks perfect French, musing that Ukraine and all of the other former Soviet states were not somehow really states that there hadn't been you know, international recognition, almost a post-Soviet settlement that you're just saying here, um, of their status and caused huge backlash, you know, particularly from the Baltic states, which, of course, were never recognised as being forcibly reincorporated into the Soviet Union 
as a, as a result of World War II, they'd been you know liberated and got a freedom after the dissolution of the Russian Empire at the end of uh, World War One, and Stalin took them you know right back in again, and we never recognise it. Remember, Stalin also tried to take Finland back in, and of course there was the Nazi German and you know Russian attacks on Poland. You know, also questions in the period between World War One and World War Two about all of the other states that became independent from uh, major continental empires like Poland and Hungary and Finland and uh, what was then Czechoslovakia and even Austria itself. I mean, which was, you know, what's the imperial power? All these kind of questions about this, these new states and uh, their future. And we really put all of the former Soviet republics, with the exception of the Baltic states, in a grey zone strategically and politically. We didn't really engage with them as if, uh, the, you know, they were real states. Uh, and uh, you're right, we kept calling them, you know, the Central Asian states, the stands, as if you know, sort of unwashed mass is from out there in the nether regions. And uh, same with the Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, not fully engaged with Moldova, Belarus, Ukraine, much closer to Europe, but never fully embraced. The whole enlargement of the EU and then NATO in 2004 just left this grey zone. The Western Balkans uh, you know, fall into that kind of category as well. After the dissolution of Yugoslavia, we didn't recognise a successor state there. But you know, one of the issues has been that everybody tended to look at Russia as the continuating state of the Soviet Union, therefore also the Russian Empire. So everybody always talks about Russia. I mean, here in Germany, actually just last night, I was having a debate with someone who kept talking about, well, Russia lost 20 million you know, people in World War Two, and yeah, we've got an obligate, we've had an obligation to Russia. But it wasn't Russians that twenty million? It was Soviet citizens, and there were Ukrainians and Armenians and Georgians and Kazakhs and Belarusians and Moldovans. There was a there was a whole larger state there of two hundred seventy odd million people, which you know lost more than a hundred million people. Um, you know, it, it goes down to one hundred forty million. Those were the people of that larger state that uh, lost so many people. You know, you think back to Britain and the British Empire in World War One, and you know the Australians and New Zealand and and, and you know, Canadians and you know Gurkhas and Indians and others, you know, also fighting for the British Empire. Yeah, you, you can't equate that earlier period with you know the current circumstances. There has been also a recognition in other circles here in Germany and elsewhere that there was a huge mistake made about Ukraine that Ukraine was also the, the object of German predation during World War II. And that, you know, the, there's a lot of guilt now about Ukraine being ignored or Belarus being ignored and not thought about in that period, you know, for 30 years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And I think we're all guilty of that, just as you said, that we, we didn't you know, really think about what the implications were of having all of these new states. And of course, you know, we saw between World War One and World War Two what the implications were of not really, you know, thinking through the futures of states like Poland and and Hungary and you know others that had emerged from either the Versailles or the Trianon and you know and other treaties. There's still a huge level of ignorance about even say the current territory of the the state of Ukraine. The western part of it was never part of the Russian Empire. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the whole area around Lviv. Um, there's there's background part of the Ottoman Empire, as you said in the in the south. It's it's hugely complex, and I mean I think in theory we've arrived at a point where national boundaries are supposed to be recognised, and then you then you 
will be retained and then you can argue for people's human rights within those. But it does beg the question with the complexity and the hugeness of Ukraine. I think people have you know, slowly come to terms with the sheer size of the country as they understand it over the last year or so as they follow the war is what is a workable end game here that that Ukrainians who who have had a sense of national identity which has been created more than anybody else by by Vladimir Putin I would argue by forcing them to to confront that but what will they be willing to accept and what will be workable in the long run for a Ukrainian state if it does recover its sovereignty you know it's really difficult look I'll, I'll say that Ireland might have a lot of advice to give to Ukraine because you know, if you think about with the whole period of Ireland fighting for its independence and the kind of creation first of the Irish Free State and then of the Republic of Ireland and how long that took after the Easter Uprising and onwards and then the partition of the island of Ireland and the kind of other difficulties that have gone on. I mean, Ireland's been living this kind of experience for more than a century, right? And there's, you know, kind of had to live with division and, of course, you know, there's a lot of complexity to all of this and I shouldn't weigh into you know Irish politics in the course of this discussion about Ukraine but what I'm basically pointing out here we have a lot of examples around Europe and elsewhere of just the kind of like difficulties of, of, of managing the the aftermath of empires I would say Great Britain the United Kingdom is still an empire you know there's still um you know the the original colonies were of course Ireland and you know uh, Wales Scotland came in in a you know something of a of a different way and the complexity of UK uh, r- relations and relationship with Ireland and, you know, we look around Europe, we can see a lot of these similar, you know, kind of patterns and difficulties playing out. We can look globally and think, you know, Russia and Japan still don't have a peace treaty. The Soviet Union and Japan never signed a peace treaty after, you know, the San Francisco peace treaty between the US and Japan in 1956 because they had the ongoing debate about the Kuril Islands. North and South Korea are still divided. We've got, you know, Cyprus, which is, you know, kind of living with division, but that has never been recognised. You know, we could go on and on and kind of like thinking about all kinds of complexity that's out there. So how we deal with Ukraine, this has to be with an eye to other global and regional persistence of, of conflicts and of situations that we're also trying to uh, trying to resolve. I mean, it could very well be Sadly, that you know, Ukraine lives in a state of division, you know, for some considerable period of time, without a kind of formal resolution of this. So, as you're saying there, how then do we try to integrate Ukraine into regional institutions? Is there something that we could learn, you know, for example, from various other accords elsewhere around Europe? Some way of like not making that division permanent. Just as we tried to avoid uh, during the Cold War, you know, we never recognised uh, the reincorporation of the Baltic states into Russia, and the Baltic states eventually became free again. Then, uh, of course, you know, the 1990s, and are now members, full members of the European Union, uh, as well as of uh, as of NATO. We're going to have to be creative here. We're going to have to be patient. And I think, you know, there's a lot of ways of really working with Ukraine to make it a viable country once more and to help it, you know, regain over the longer time its independence. The things, you know, have probably got a lot uh, to offer uh, the Ukrainians in this uh, this regard as well. And if you think about Finnish history that being, being attacked in 1939, I mean, yes, they lost a lot of territory, but Finland is, you know, one of the most successful uh, European Union countries, of course, has just recently become 
uh, a member of NATO, Ukraine is not going to look in the future like it did in 1991 or that it did in 2021. You know, for example, they've got demographic changes, been other wars, and everything going to have to shifted, you know, many of the uh, internal dynamics. Ukraine had been moving towards more decentralization uh, because of, you know, the EU association and other agreements uh, that were concluded. And, you know, after uh, 2018, there was all kinds of efforts about the European Union to help Ukraine with decentralization. The wars re-centralized it. But you're probably likely to see, you know, not more of activity of um, Ukraine and Ukraine's regions and, and then driving uh, forward uh, development. I was just in Brussels last week and uh, the European um, research uh, entity have uh, started to look at uh, the role of um, European cities and regions and engaging with Ukraine's uh, cities and regions, kind of equivalent counterparts. There's all kinds of things that are happening out there, which kind of on the surface are fairly messy, but are already geared towards rebuilding, reconstructing Ukraine and helping Ukraine reshape itself under a variety of different circumstances. And I think we're going to have to take a long view here to Ukraine restoring its integrity. I know people are listening to this and thinking, well, that was all over the place. But I think that that's, you know, the problem that we're dealing with here. Because we've got lots of examples of similar divisions that come out of, you know, complicated histories, including in Ireland that we, you know, we have to find creative ways of contending with and dealing with. There's lots of possibilities about how we put Ukraine on a different track. You know, irrespective of, you know, how the territorial configuration looks in the interim. But let's not, you know, ever think that that's for keeps. That sounds to me as if it's a it's realism rather than rather than pessimism. But of course, there are an awful lot of unknowns here. Let me just ask you one more question, if you wouldn't mind, which I felt I feel I have to ask you, given your own uh, given your own experience. I mean, we started by talking about how how this is seen as a proxy war from the United States. And regardless of the the unexpected unity of European countries in this issue, it's still the case that the United States is the primary supplier of, of material support to the Ukrainian government. What would happen if Donald Trump were president again in relation to this conflict? Well, it's really military support, but the Europeans are stepping up. But if a lot of financial support is coming from Europe, just to be very clear to people, and the vast majority of refugees are here in Europe. The United States has not taken in a lot of refugees. Ireland's taken a, you know, a, a large number per capita, you know, for example. But here in Germany, just huge um, opening up uh, of um, uh, housing and you know, all kinds of benefits for Ukrainians to help people, you know, tie themselves over things. 1.2 or 3 million refugees here in uh, Germany, but of course there are even more in Poland and Slovakia and elsewhere. So I don't want us to diminish by any means what Europe and Europeans individually and collectively have been doing here. But you're absolutely right. The big, and I mentioned it at the beginning here, the big question here and, uh, and elsewhere is what happens in the US? And, you know, it's not just Donald Trump. It's the way that, you know, he's kind of set the tone and others are, uh, who are in the mix, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Walter Sanchez as, as, as setting the tone of Ukraine becoming a domestic political football, somehow a kind of a symbol of excess of, um, of US spending um, or kind of overextension on foreign policy because you've always got these impulses within the United States to, you know, pull away and disengage, um, just like, you know, we've seen over the last... Hundred years of uh, U.S. history, 
Trump, you know, is an example of that, but there are many others as well. There's a, a desire to attack Biden um, with Ukraine. We saw that, of course, with the infamous phone call between Trump and Volodymyr Zelensky, where Trump's trying to get Zelensky to dig up dirt on Hunter Biden and Joe Biden in the run-up to the you know, previous presidential election. That's that's going to happen again, you know, for sure. All, all of this is going to kind of come back to haunt us and... It's like zombie politics, you know, you just can't get rid of it. It's just going to keep on coming back. And that's, you know, the kind of the real risk uh, with the return of uh, Trump is that the, or oh, well, anybody in the Trump mode, is the United States is no longer seen as serious. Even if at the level of the Pentagon or within Congress and the Senate and behind the scenes, there continues to be a lot of focus on um, Ukraine. It's very hard to tell about how the top of politics is going to impact all of that. Look, I mean, if Trump returns, the United States will have a whole bucket load of problems because he'll be returning to power somebody who has uh, tried to affect a coup, um, as well as somebody who's kind of lied egregiously on pretty much every front. And I think there'll be just questions around the world about whether the US is even a country that anybody wants to, to do business with, you know, let alone, apart from transactional business, let alone what, you know, kind of impact that will have on Ukraine, but I mean, it, it will be, and that fear of that is a spur to Europeans try to kind of figure out contingencies. If it's already, you, know, you can see that happening and hear that happening here, because that question comes up over and over again. I mean, obviously, can't answer about the likelihood of him coming back either. That's one of these other unknowables at this stage. Fiona, thanks. No, thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Fiona Hill for joining us. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. That's it from us for today. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks again for listening.